Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Good morning, church. It is so good to see you this morning. Go ahead and smile at me. Come on, second service is my favorite service. Don't tell all the other service. Man, are, you, are you excited to be here this morning? Like five of you are excited to be here. Come on, how many of you excited to be here this morning? Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm just so glad you made it. You look good. Tell them you're so glad they're a Dallas Cowboy fan. Turn to your second choice and say, if you're an Oakland Raider, you're dismissed right now. Oakland Raider fans are dismissed. We have three people already leaving. All right, all right. Man, I'm so glad you made it. Hey, I just want to thank you for, I, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, for you guys really blessed my family and I. We, you sent us to Disneyland. Kids had the time of our life. We had the time of our life. We came home exhausted. We needed uh, a vacation from our vacation, but uh, we just were, we had so much rest. And uh, thank you for your generosity. And I just want to thank all of our, I mean, we, we've had an incredible month uh, of guest speakers. I think about five weeks ago, we had Pastor Jude Fuquay all the way from California. And how many of you were here to hear Pastor Jude? He was amazing. Uh, I'm sure you were blessed. And then about four weeks ago, we had Dr. Stan, our resident theologian. I did an exceptional job, and I know you were blessed. And then about, was it two weeks ago, we had Pastor Frank Damasio, and uh, he just, man, he, he was a huge blessing. And then uh, last week or two weeks, I, I'm getting it all mixed up, but Tracy Amanda Wilde spoke. She talked about following Jesus, and uh, she did an exceptional job. And then last week, we had our very own Pastor Ken Wilde. And he talked about the state of a nation. He gets all his brilliance from me. Just, you know, I'm kidding. I get it all from him. Uh, but I'm not that smart. He's smart. Anyways, let's move on. It's getting a little bit awkward. But, hey, we, I, I just think we're so blessed to have exceptional communicators. And I think we're, we're in a healthy church. And I'm so glad you made it today. So we're starting a new sermon series called The Prison Epistles. So I'm going to spend about the next five years in... Uh, one book. Uh, I'm actually. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go straight out of the book of Colossians this morning. I'm, I originally was gonna talk for about six weeks out of Colossians. I'm probably gonna extend it to probably the end of the summer. There's just so much good stuff. So I'm excited about this. So we're gonna be talking about how to how to think like a Christian. Can I get an amen? I just think thinking today is muddled. And uh, how many of you know we need clarity? And I think we need clarity. We need clarity about who we are. So I'm going to talk about, if you're taking notes, you're going to be shocked today because you're actually going to be able to take some notes with points. I got points for you. Can I get an amen, church? Uh, so I'm going to talk about three things uh, that we need to know in order for us to grow. Three things. These aren't original to me, uh, but three things we need to, to know in order to grow up in Christ. Before I get to my message, I just want to welcome the Maestro family, Steve and Tanya. Trent, Maddie. Steve is a mentor of mine. We're family. I love you guys. Trent is an incredible communicator. I listen to all his stuff. He doesn't even know it. I've learned so much from him. I'm so glad that he's uh, here today with us. We just love the Maestro family. You guys are amazing. But we're going to get into uh, our message. And uh, before I do, I, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, this text. Paul most likely is writing from, and many scholars feel he's writing from Ephesus. He's in prison. He's not doing prison ministry. He is in prison. 
And so uh, Paul, man, pa- Pastor Paul is he's reframing how we think about, man, suffering. He reframes how we think about vocation. And again, over the next few weeks, we're going to flesh that out. So he's writing from Ephesus. Um, he, he's writing to a church that uh, he's not familiar with, uh, Colossae, if, you don't, if you're not familiar, uh, was located in the Lycus Valley. Uh, it was situated on a river between two like major cities, Heropolis, and I think it's Laodicea. Uh, we, we, it's basically modern-day Turkey. And so Paul is writing to a young church, uh, formerly pagans, erstwhile pagans, and uh, he, he wants to teach them, wants to train them how to, how to think like a Christian. And so his ultimate goal, we find this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 28, is to present everyone mature. Everyone say mature. Maturity is, is huge for Paul. Uh, maturity is a big thing. Biblical vision of maturity is pretty simple. Uh, to be mature is not just simply paying your bills. Can I get an amen to that? It's not just learning to take responsibility, which is an important part of maturity. But maturity, in, according to the biblical vision, is learning to be fully alive, learning to be fully human, learning to inhabit the story that God has for us. Can I just tell you something really quick about you? Your story about you is really not about you. The story that God has for us, scripted for us, is God's story. And uh, we have a responsibility to enter into that story that God has for us. Let me just say something really quick. This last week, went up, spent some time with my family up in Seattle, and uh, spent some time with my cousin, and he had an ATV. How many people like ATVs? Okay, a few of you. So my son Quincy, uh, he's six, going on 60. The kid is a man beast. And uh, so he sees the ATV, it's running. So he charges over to the machine and gets himself in the driver's seat, and he wants to drive this baby. The problem is, is that he's only six years old. He can't even reach the pedal, can't even reach the brake. And so I had, to, I had to reason with him. How many of you have to reason with your kids every now and then? So I'm reasoning with him. I'm like, son, if you, if you, if you try to drive this machine, you're probably going to break your neck. And so he looked at me, and he's like, okay, Dad, uh, I trust you. What I loved about my son is that there's this built-in, you could see it in his eyes, there's this built-in desire in him or longing to grow up. I think we all have a desire in us, built in by God, to grow up into Christ, to grow up. I, I, let me say it this way. I, I don't think that, uh, well, I, I know I don't, and maybe there's exceptions, but I just don't think we all want to, like, be 46 and uh, still live in our mother's basement playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, Right? I think there's a desire in all of us to really mature. So there's nothing wrong with mature. Mature is, is, a, is a good thing. And so I want to talk to you about, okay, how can, we, how can we grow up as followers of Jesus? How can we mature in him? And so Paul is writing this, this beautiful letter uh, to uh, the church in Colossae. We begin in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Can you say the will of God? Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Verse 2, to the saints, everyone say the saints, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, can you say in Christ, at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let me just read that one more time. Grace, everyone say grace, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So what's the first thing that I want you to know in order for you to grow. What you need to know today, it's pretty simple, okay? We got points here, it's amazing. The first thing you need to know is the will of God. In order for you to mature in Christ, you have to know God's will for you. 
Verse 1, it says, Paul said, makes it very clear. Hey, by the will of God, I'm an apostle. By the will of God. Let me just say this really quick. The will of God is shorthand for the large-scale Christian story. When we, when we, and I'm going to flesh this out over the next few weeks, but the will of God connotes the entire story of God renewing the space-time continuum. It's all about God coming and overlapping heaven with earth. It's all about forgiveness. It's about grace. It's about glory. It's about new heavens. It's about new earth. It's about God's future world crashing into our planet. It's through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that new creation has been launched. You've heard me preach this so many times before, but to be a Christian does not mean that one day we get to fly out into some outer space location, a disembodied place we called heaven, and stay there for the rest of eternity. What we find in Revelation, the the book of Revelation is that new heavens, new earth is the goal of God's redemptive work in human history. And so we're called, right, to be a part of this breathtaking story of God transforming the world of space and time and matter, bodies and brains, come on, and relationships, and even the Dallas Cowboys, and football, and basketball, and everything that we know on this planet. This planet is good. Can I get an amen? However, it's been defaced by corruption, Our lives have been defaced by corruption, and we need healing. And so when Paul uses the word, the will of God, he's referring to the Christian, large-scale Christian story. Paul also, on a secondary meaning, when he refers to the will of God, he associates it with uh, who God is, God's character. So you can't know God's will if you don't know who God is. And who God is is fleshed out in the microcosm of Paul's life. Paul gives us, for, for example, Paul gives us some biographical information in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. So if you're not familiar with St. Paul, he tells us about his former life. In verse 14, he says that I had zeal, or I was zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Zeal does not mean, it's not a synonym for passion. Remember as a young man, my, my mom gave me a, a was it a three-wheel, a plastic, three, is that what you call it? And I remember I would just, I, run, I ran that thing ragged, right? I just, I wrote it hard. I wrote it hard. And I was passionate about everything that I, everything that I did. Chloe, my niece, is exactly like this. We're passionate. We love to, we're intense. I, I think it's like my redheaded nature in me where we like to do things passionate. Zeal does not mean passionate. Zeal, when Paul refers to zeal, he's referring to militant nationalism. In other words, Paul is saying he's a violent dude. He's unhinged. Um, he's involved or he's colluding with state-sponsored terrorism. He's persecuting Christians. We find in Acts chapter 7, I believe, Stephen, everyone say Stephen. Stephen preaches a brilliant message in the temple. And uh, we then have, at the end of the climax of the story, we have a group of religious, the religious aristocracy. They send him out and they stone him. And what we find, Dr. Luke tells us that Paul, or Saul at the time, that was his, his former name, was outside of this group that was stoning um, Stephen, and they were laying coats, and Dr. Luke says that Saul was a young man. And I used to think that maybe Saul was just kind of a part of this, like, choreographed martyrdom of Stephen. I now realize that what Luke is saying is that Paul, or Saul, was the one who orchestrated the martyrdom of Stephen. He's the alpha dog. He's violent to the core. The good news is we find in Acts chapter 9, Paul on the road to Damascus, he's going to persecute some Christians. He might kill some Christians. What happens? Jesus reveals himself to him and says, Paul, Saul, Saul, excuse me, 
why are you persecuting me? I love this. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, Paul, Saul, excuse me, says at that time, Jesus, you're my Lord. What do you want me to do? God changes his life. If I was God and Saul was persecuting my people, I'd probably make him blind for a couple more years. I'd probably break his shins. Is that possible? I'd probably make him hurt. I mean, and I guess that's just kind of the revenge in me. I'm kind of, you know, that redheaded nature. That's just kind of how I would respond to a situation like this. But here we see in microcosm, God is utter, uh, utterly self-giving in his relationship with creation. So Paul's life is turned upside down. So the will of God is all about this beautiful Christian story. The will of God is connected to who God is. But the will of God, let me say it this way, the will of God is important for us to know. If we don't know the will of God, we can't do what God wants us to do. I mean, I know it sounds really simple, but you have to know God's will for your life. Paul says, hey, by the will of God, I'm an apostle. So what Paul is suggesting, hey, I, I didn't come up with this idea, guys. I didn't decide to be an apostle. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, hey, yeah, uh, uh, God's called me to be an apostle. Here's a t-shirt, apostle so-and-so, right? No one, no one names themselves or self-appoints themselves to apostle, apostleship. No one does that. You'd be crazy. How, how, wh- why, Chris? What we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you can turn there. You don't have to turn there, but if you get the scripture up, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about his apostolic vocation. I promise I'm getting somewhere with this. Verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. So Paul is lampooning this boasting culture in Corinth. So he's turning upside down these achievement um, hungry super apostles. And so he's being a little bit sarcastic. This is like holy sarcasm. We come to verse 17. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it with someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the place, or in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I was speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. He continues, are they Hebrews? He's talking about the super apostles, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Again, he's turning everything upside down. He's boasting, but his boasting is upside down. And then he starts to list off the achievements of his apostolic ministry. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. He continues, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This is not Mary Jane. It's not 420. Let's move on. Bad joke. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Hey, I floated the river, right? But that doesn't count. I mean, this is is an altogether different category. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, right? Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness, like I've camped before, right? Does that count? No, it doesn't count. Danger's everywhere, Paul. There's danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many 
a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me and my, of my anxiety for all the churches. He's a good father. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, here with the climax of this uh, portion of the letter, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. He's making an oath. He's essentially talking about the corona, Morales. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. At Damascus, the governor under King Artis was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. He's listing out his achievements. Doesn't, man, Living in a, an apostolic life is not filled with, like, rainbow-puking unicorns, right? One pastor called it, it's not camp cupcake. And, and I, you know, it's not, it's not fun and games, right? This is, this is an altogether different experience. You're not going to nominate yourself to this. So how did Paul wake up? And this is relevant for us. How did Paul wake up every single morning and say, God, let's do it again. Let's fort some more rivers, Right? I have trouble camping. I can't build a fire. Man, if I had to do something like this, I'd probably be done in a couple days. Can I get an amen? Right? How did Paul develop the resilience? How did Paul remain indefatigable in the face of tribulation and circumstances and difficulty? Well, it's pretty simple. I'm not going to overcomplicate it. He knew the will of God. He knew what he was called to do. You see, when you know what you're called to do, Nothing will be able to stop you. Nothing can stop you when you know the will of God for your life. You see, uh, a job is something, as one pastor said, a job is something you choose. A calling is something that God chooses for you. And when you know God's will, what you're supposed to do in your soul, nothing will keep you from what God has for you. In order for us to grow up in Christ, man, we can't have a casual relationship with God's will. Man, we need to know what God has called us to do. Right? We can't just haphazardly drift through life. I think Mark talked about this earlier today. We can't just drift through life hoping that we accidentally come into the will of God. I think as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to know several things, man, I am beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made, right? And that God, yes, has something very specific for me to do. And when I get my mind, my heart, my soul around God's will for my life, man, nothing will be able to stop me. Come hell or high water, can I get an amen, church? Doesn't matter what happens in the good times or the bad times. When I know God's calling, I can quit a job, but I can't quit a calling and when I know what God has called me to do, watch out. Come on. That's when God begins to work through you. That's when you grow into the maturity, into human flourishing. That's when you, when you really begin to flesh out what it means to be human. That's when you're fully alive. And how many of you want to be fully alive? So my question here today is pretty simple. Uh, do you know God's will? Have you been arrested by the call of God on your life. There's no judgment if you don't know. Maybe some of you, you felt like a couple years ago you did know, 
and you're struggling, you're trying to figure things out, that's okay. There's no judgment here today. But as a pastor, I'm coming to ask the question, do you know God's will? And the question, I just, I simply wanted to serve as a catalyst for you to think about it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how we enter into God's will. How we enter into this large story where God takes over our lives, where we're not obsessing about ourselves. Can I get an amen to that? Where we're reflecting the goodness of God back to our city, to our neighbors, to our family. Do you know the will of God? Let me just say this really quick. How do we know the will of God? It's pretty simple. We know the will of God by knowing God's word. This is simple Sunday, people. Simple Sunday. We know God's will by knowing God's word. I find it interesting. I've been a pastor for 20 years now, and I've talked to a lot of people, and it's funny how there's this implicit dichotomy. People will come to me, and there's no judgment here. You know I love you. But people will come to me and say, hey, Chris, um, I just can't, I'm confused. My thinking is muddled about what he wants me to do. And usually, without question, I'll ask them, hey, um, are, are you reading your Bible? And usually the answer is no. I just I kind of read it every now and then, kind of, you know, spend a, a few minutes, maybe a day or two. Um, and again, there's no judgment here. I know we go through seasons, but I've realized there is a direct correlation between knowing God's will and being in God's word. When you know God's word, God will bring clarity to your heart. The word of God is a, light, a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Come on. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. My one goal for us over the next eight weeks is for us to develop this insatiable love for God's word. And when you inhabit God's word, you begin to know what God wants you to do. So if you want to grow, you have to know God's will. Number two, if you want to grow up in Christ, again, this is Simple Sunday, you just need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. It's funny, this is identity talk. It's funny, as Americans, um, identity talk has been hijacked by uh, the rhetoric of self-esteem, right? So we, we got to be careful. Before we get into uh, identity talk, according to the Bible, I just, I think there's a problem with a lot of talk about identity. 2015, I think it was a Times uh, article that said 2015, 16, and 17 is like the years for identity talk. We're talking about identity. We're talking about gender. We're talking about fluidity. We're talking about a lot of different things. Identity talk is really important. Unfortunately, American identity has its reference in the self, right? Self-esteem, you got to love yourself, um, self-actualization, you got to take care of yourself. And I think you need to take care of yourself. Can I, can I get an amen? You need to take a shower. You need to brush your teeth, right? You, you need to feed your body. Can I get an amen? But love yourself has more of the idea, uh, it's connected to the idea that, that uh, the self is the ultimate reference point, that if you can like, figure yourself out and be true to yourself, you can enter into fulfillment. Well, the Bible has a different perspective. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, coined the Latin phrase homo incurvatus in se, humans curved in on themselves. The problem with the human heart is that it's twisted. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, hey, what makes you unclean is not the outside. Can I get an amen? It's what's on the inside. 
man, and so I've taught you this, but I think as Christians, we have to learn to be inauthentic in order for us to be authentic. We have to be inauthentic to our true self. And when you choose to be inauthentic to your true heart, because when it comes down to it, you're just pretty darn wicked. Come on. This is the Bible. I'm just, I'm, this is just Jesus. The human heart is, deceptively, is deceitfully wicked. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 17. And the more I get to know myself, the more I realize, man, I have 99, at least 99 problems. That my heart is twisted. That, man, I, 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 want, I want to do things for my own sake. But that's the beginning. If you, can, if you can realize or come to the realization that the self, it's not big enough to be an ultimate reference point to build your identity on. When you can come to the end of yourself, that's when you can understand now verse 2 when Paul says, to the saints. Everyone say, to the saints. To the saints and the faithful brothers who are what? In Christ. To the saints? To the saints? What are we talking about? Is Paul suggesting that there's like this hierarchical structure in the early church of haves and have-nots? Is this kind of like an implicit pyramid scheme where you have the haves up here and the rest of us, they're all the saints, the moral exemplars, the people who pray for 20 hours a day, who read their Bible all the time, you know, who are absolutely perfect, you know, is Is that sainthood and the rest of us just kind of have to struggle in life? Is that what Paul is suggesting? Paul's not suggesting that. Paul knows who he's talking to. He's talking to some pagans, ex-pagans who are young Christians who are struggling in their faith, probably a little bit muddled in their thinking about who they are and who Jesus is. And he's come to, he's, he's written to them and through his writing he's come to bring them to a place of maturity. So Paul knows exactly who they are. But what does Paul do? Paul locates them not in their brokenness, not in their past, not in their genetic makeup. He locates them not in their difficulties, their problems, their stuff, right? Their their brokenness, their dehumanized habits. Paul does not locate them in that, in their immaturity, in their muddled thinking. Hey, dude, your thinking is muddled. Stop it. He doesn't start there. He begins with locating them in Christ. In Christ, if you look at Paul, most likely wrote 14 letters in the New Testament. He uses uh, in Christ at least uh, 200 times. It's characteristic of Paul. You've heard me talk about this a lot. 18 times. He uses it 18 times in the book of Colossians. And I just want to give you just a few examples. He says, you're in Christ. There's a lot of different derivatives of in Christ. He's, he also says, uh, that your love in the Spirit, you love people because you're in the Spirit. Everyone say, you're in the Spirit. He says, in whom? Everyone say, in whom? In whom we have redemption and forgiveness. So you're in the Spirit, you're in Christ, you're in redemption, you're in forgiveness. In him, all things hold together. So Paul is essentially saying, hey, you don't, you don't need to be complete because you're in Christ, you're already complete. You don't need more cowbell. You don't need to be taller. You don't need to be prettier. You don't need to have more achievements because you are already complete in Christ. In whom, he he continues, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all wisdom, all knowledge, all beauty, all the justification that you ever need in life is found in Christ. 
You're rooted and built up and established in him. And we'll talk about this over the next few weeks. In him, you were circumcised. So you're dead to old creation. Old creation was that sick, sad world that gave shape to the human condition and the human heart because of the achievements of Jesus. And because your life is bound out up in the life of Jesus. What is true, as N.T. Wright says, what is true of Jesus is also then true of you. You are then dead to that old world, old creation. You are now alive because Jesus came back from the dead. You are alive to new creation. You're alive to healing. You're alive to the work of Jesus in your life. He locates this new and growing church in Christ. You're rooted and built up and established in him. In him you're circumcised. And I love this. In him is the powerful, powerful working of God. I love it. Paul uses the locative sense. He's locating us, not in our circumstances. Locating us not in who we used to be. He's locating us not in our fear, our regrets, our frustrations. So many times we build our identity on what we used to be. We build our identity on acceptance. Psychologists will tell you Probably the most powerful human force for every human is this longing for acceptance. We'll do anything to be accepted. We don't care who accepts us. We just want acceptance. C.S. Lewis talks about, hey, our desire, which has twisted everything out of shape, is a longing to be on the inside or the in-group. Our terror is to be considered on the outside and having an identity that means nothing to other people. And if you build your life on the acceptance of others, you're going to be eventually disappointed. Because we all know people are stupid. People are fickle. You're fickle. I'm fickle. Here's the thing, man, if I base my opinion on what you think about me, I can't be who God's called me to be. Your opinion of me doesn't, and I love you, doesn't matter a whole lot. Let me say this even, let me sharpen that up. My opinion of me doesn't mean a whole lot to me. You know what matters to me is God's opinion. And that shapes everything else. It shapes how I think. It shapes how I pray. It shapes how I lead. It shapes how I pastor. If I really care about your opinion, I'm sorry, our opinions are fickle. Some of you should read my emails. I get a lot of good emails and I get a lot of weird emails saying the darn, Christians say the darndest things, right? Man, if I lived, man, if, if some of you want me to wear a suit every, you know, every Sunday. Some of you want me to wear skinnies. Some of you want me, let's have more hymns. Some of you want more tambourines. Some of you want shofar. Yeah, some of you want renewal. Some of you want, I, I, here's the thing, man, if I live by, all your opinions and all your desires and all your wants, we would be a very confused church. Now, this doesn't mean that, I, that I'm perfect. I, sometimes I get things wrong. Yes, I will listen because we're family, right? So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, hey, based from a place of arrogance, I don't need your opinion. No, I'll, I'll listen, right? We're family. I'm not perfect. Come on. But hey, my, my opinion of me is not the most important thing about me. Your opinion about me is not the most important thing about me. God's opinion is the most important thing. 
In fact, what I think, and this is just a big idea that we're going to flesh out over the next few weeks, the most important thing about you is not you. Can I get an amen? The most important thing about you is how God thinks and feels about you. And then you allow that to frame how you think about Jesus, how you think about yourself. Because we all know identity scripts your future. Identity gives shape to your future. So if you build your life or your identity on a regret or a fear or a weakness or I'm not tall enough or I wish I was shorter, I wish I looked that way or I wish I had that gift or I wish I was this way, you're going to build yourself on a false identity. And that false identity will script everything and it will lead you away from what God has for you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Can I get an amen to that? I'm going to talk more about that. Yes, 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 yes. Rebellion has disfigured your heart. But you're not in your rebellion. You're in Christ. That's your ultimate, as one pastor said, that's your ultimate reference point. That's who you are. Well, Chris, man, I, 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 I made some bad decisions this week. Hey, let me tell you, everyone in this room made some bad decisions this week. And as, as, as a Christian, we have a responsibility as we think like a Christian, we have a responsibility not to be defined by our activity, but to allow ourselves to be defined by who God says we are. There's a difference. Yeah, this week, maybe some dehumanized stuff that you got into gave shape to what you did. Maybe it kind of shapes some of the activity that you were involved in, but that does not define you. What defines you is that you are in Christ. Your life is bound up in the life of Jesus. And when we know that, when we understand that, when we get that in our heart, when we get that in our mind, when we allow that to script our life, that's when we grow up. That's when we grow into grace. That's when we grow into love. That's when we grow into human flourishing. That's when we grow into what God has already done for you and I through the achievements of Jesus. And so Paul will flesh this out over the next, and we'll talk about this over the next few weeks, but he fleshes this out in his letters. So what we need to know if we want to grow is we need to know the will of God. We need to know who we are. And finally, we need to know that um, God is our Father. Simple Sunday. Chris, I've heard this so many times. Stop it. God's my Father. I get it. God loves me. I get it. Anyone who says, God loves me, I get it, doesn't truly get it. I think you've got a problem with your perspective. Really do. I think you become so familiar with love talk and the utter self-giving nature of God himself that you've forgotten how good you have it and who you serve. Remember, Paul says to the saints who are in Christ, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. Everyone say grace. Grace and peace from God, our Father. Now, if you know anything about ancient Near East religion, it was polytheistic. Pagans had a radical vision of the gods. They were, if you read the, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the gods were deeply immoral. They were seductive. The gods had no desire to be just. They didn't care about humans. Uh, they were capricious. They were vengeful. 
Uh, some were portrayed as stupid, comical, uh, again, immoral. They did things in a whimsical way. So imagine you're, you're a pagan, and you give your life to Jesus, and now you have a radical, a radically different portrait of what divinity is like. And you have a, a, a man named Paul, or you have other people talking about God as being father. This is, again, this would have been breathtaking. When you understood the gods to be vengeful, understood the gods to be immoral, they did not care to be just at all. And you have these early Christians announcing the good news. And the good news is that Jesus right now is already ruling the cosmos. And not only is Jesus the king of the world through his death and resurrection, but Jesus is also a good father. He reflects the heart of our father. Could you imagine you're a pagan hearing that for the very first time? God is our father is a thoroughgoing motif that shapes the 14 letters of Paul. He's talking to a bunch of pagans that don't understand that. Divinity is capricious, vengeful, megalomaniacal, evil, bent on destroying people. Here we have a portrait that God actually loves us as a father, right? God is not a consumer. The relationship that God has with us is not based on a consumer model. Can I get an amen? God's like, hey, hey, today, I'm not going to come to you and say, Kyle, man, uh, you woke up this morning. You didn't spend, like, two hours with me in prayer. And, uh, you, you know, you did. You made some decisions. You were thinking wrong about me. Um, so based on that, um, I'm going to let you go. You can kind of do your own thing. God isn't going to say that. God's not worried about all the people not coming to church on a Sunday, worshiping him, right, doing the Pentecostal two-step or the Hillsong hop, right? God's not frustrated that more people get excited about Steph Curry and LeBron and, of course, I understand the Dallas Cowboys. Can I get an amen? He's not frustrated. He's not overwhelmed about people not serving him. The relationship that God has with creation is one of a father. And his generosity is inexhaustible, even when we're exhausting. Even when we're exhausting, God loves us. Why? Because God's relationship with us is not based on a consumer model. It's based on a covenant model. God's love for us is unconditional. God loves you in ways you can't even imagine. I remember I've told this story many times before. Uh, when we first adopted our boys, we took them home, and uh, they, they would have been four days old. And I was, to be honest, I was scared out of my mind. It was, it was really, it was a quick turnaround. They were born, and then we had like two days to figure out what we're going to do. Uh, it, was, it was the most amazing time. It was the best of times, but it was also the worst of times. Like, I, I'm like, I'm a dad. I don't, I don't know how to change a diaper. I've never changed a diaper before. So remember, we brought the, the boys home. And uh, Quincy needed his diaper changed. Never changed a diaper before. So I went in the room to change his diaper and open up the diaper, and he literally projectile poops everywhere. So there's poop all over the wall. There's poop over my, my mouth, poop over my shirt. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. And you know what? I have a sensitive gag reflex, right? I'm, I'm like gagging, having a miserable experience. You know, I'm, I'm a new dad trying to change this kid's diaper, and he's pooping all over me. My dad just got there to our house, 
and he hears some unnatural noise, noises coming from me, from our room. He comes in to check in, and I just, I love my dad. He looks at me, and he turns to my wife in the living room and says, hey, uh, Kel, your, your husband needs you. <laughs> Leaves me, right? So Kel came and cleaned me up, and I remember thinking in that moment, man, my son just pooped all over me. Not once did I ever think, all right, you're out of the house, kid. You take your diapers, you take whatever, your food, and you learn to live on your own. No, my relationship with my son is based on a covenant. I can't tell you how much I love my sons. I can't tell you how much I love my daughter. And yes, some days they're frustrating. Can I get an amen, parents? Some days their logic is so incoherent, I, I don't even know how to talk to them. Some days I just, I want to hide myself and cry myself to sleep, right? But my relationship with my kids is, man, it's, it's unconditional. It's based on unconditional love. I'm their dad. And yeah, as, as Frank DiMazio talked a couple weeks ago, yeah, they're smiling sinners. Yeah, our kids might be unrepentant sociopaths. Yes, our kids, they embrace rebellion at times. And they do stupid things. My sons of thunder. I know they're going to continue to do some interesting things. But my relationship with them is based on love. Unlimited love. When you know this, it changes everything. Not just know it, but you really know it. And if you, if you know God's will for your life, if you know who you are, you're not located in your circumstances, you're not located in your sickness, you're not located in your difficulty, you're located in Christ. And when you know your God is your Father, you will grow in grace, you will grow in wisdom, you will truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. And can I tell you something? Nothing will be able to stop you. God will turn you into an unstoppable force because you know God's will, because you know who you are, come on, and you know your Father is in charge of your life. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.